Thank you, Natalie. Yes, we are in John chapter 4, if you want to turn there. And we have such a delightful uh, story and character. Remember John, part of what John is doing, the inspired author of John, is he's, he's using these stories. Many of them, most of them were not shared in the other Gospels. It's probably the, the, the latest Gospel that was composed and from John, his his eyewitness account of all the activities and ministry of Jesus and, and really spent the first three chapters through the, the prologue and introducing us to people like Nicodemus. Of course, John the Baptist was known by other Gospels and yet he, he really lays the foundation for this incredible life and ministry for people to read. He lays the foundation of the kingdom of God can be entered by the spirit of God. That the the kingdom of God is eternal life. And that's available to us in the here and now. Then he brings and introduces us to this really really special person uh, in the Gospels, uh, the Samaritan woman by the well. And as we read this, I want you to keep a couple of things in mind. I want you to think about barriers. Sometimes there's barriers in our lives and in the world world that get between us and God and what he wants to do in our lives. And maybe this morning he is inviting you to break through some of those particular barriers in your life. I was thinking about uh, a little bit of history. Jedediah mentioned that in Asbury, it's really what God does often. He brings these movements of his spirit throughout history. I was reminded of this early at the turn of the century, not this century, but last century, as early as 1905, 1906. Think back. Yeah, I know most of you cannot, maybe the Methanies can, but think back to the 1905, 1906, think, like this is before, this is when the Jim Crow laws were, were happening, they were still in place, right, there's still all of this uh, segregation and racial tension. 1905, 1906, this is, I don't know how many, maybe 12, 14 years before the women had the right to vote in our nation. So this is a long time ago. A couple of weeks. And the Spirit raises up this young black preacher. I hope I say his name right, I might not, but William J. Seymour. And it was said that he was blind in one eye and he goes and he goes to LA in the area and he starts preaching and teaching about the the power of the spirit being available today and God woof he does something really significant and powerful and people start coming from all over the southern california area and then word spreads i don't know how it spread because they had no social media back then, and starts to spread, and people started to come from around the world, like they're doing today in Asbury and other places. And then people would come and be filled and touched by the power of God. 
And then they would go out back to their respective countries, Egypt and China, all over the world. This, this revival took place and blessed. And, and it was controversial because of its time. I was reading it, it says, here's the controversial part. The intermingling of races and the group's encouragement of women in leadership was remarkable. 1906 was the height of the Jim Crow laws era of racial segregation. 14 prior years to women receiving the right to vote in the United States. And yet God, the Spirit of God, 50 years before the Civil Rights Movement, years before equality of women and voting rights, God said, you know what? I'm going to do something really cool. And it's going to change this nation. And it's going to change the world. And that was really a significant movement of bringing equality and justice, but also changed the church and enabled people, I believe, were all related to the seeds of what's happening in Asbury. As we read John 4, I want you to think of it and see it as the seeds of what's happening today in Asbury, the seeds of what happened in 1905, the seeds of what happened, that that Jesus was going to bring an invitation to something profound and significant and beautiful. And he didn't mean it to happen just in only certain places of his church. But he meant it to happen in every single person that has the Spirit of God. So, John chapter 4. I'm going to read halfway through the chapter, starting at verse 1. Oh, we have a map, too. I wanted to show you the map real quick. It's important that we see that. So he was, uh, he was uh, ministering, probably Nicodemus in Jerusalem. Now he was in the countryside of Judea. That's where baptism was happening. John the Baptist was there as well. Jesus' disciples were baptizing with water. And then he feels led to go back. He was up in the Galilee. Cana, remember, was where he did his first miracle of turning water into wine. He's going to go back to Galilee. And yet you've got Samaria, which is in between those two places. Now, Samaria was a hated, hated people group within Israel. If you were pious as a Jew... You really had no association whatsoever with the hated mixed-race Sumerians. In fact, oftentimes, rather, if they're going to Jerusalem, to Judea, or or Nazareth, or uh, uh, Galilee, um, they'd go east, and they'd go around just to avoid Samaria altogether. They didn't want to be polluted by all the unrighteousness and compromise and sin of the Samaritan people. But Jesus, even though he was a rabbi, he decides not to go east and around. 
he decides to go straight through Samaria. And we can just, uh, I guess we're going to go to scripture. Let's go to the John 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Remember a little bit of the possible jealousy, but John did such a beautiful, humble expression of identifying Jesus Christ as the chosen one. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. He's traveling north. Now he had had to go through Samaria, so he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. We see a little bit of Jesus' humanity in the story. He's tired. He's thirsty. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. All right, so she's naming the awkwardness. She's naming that Jesus is committing numerous cultural faux pas by even associating with her, let alone asking for her for a drink of water, let alone touching a, a cup that she would touch. Well, that would defile him. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's got her now. She can feel her thirst. Not her physical thirst. Her spiritual thirst. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Why, such a good conversation. Why didn't Jesus just stop there? He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, uh, just said, is quite true. Man, did Jesus bring down the conversation, right? He's, 
I mean, this stirs up all sorts of questions for me. Like, one, how did Jesus know all this information? Had he been spying on her privately? Was he reading her mail that was going in? What was what was going on, and, and why would he introduce this extremely sensitive subject? He's, he's got her right there. Like, she is thirsty for the things of God. Why would he go this other direction? What would you do if you were the woman? Would you change the subject? I would change the subject. She changes the subject, right? She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must uh, worship is in Jerusalem. So not only does she change the subject, but she changes it to the most controversial subject that she could have. Maybe create some distance from this prophet who knows way too much about her personal life, right? Interesting to see how Jesus answers. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Mount Gerizim, we'll talk about that in Samaria. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come, hallelujah, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus then declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked. You you know Peter thought about it, but he's like, "Mm, I'm going to pass on this one. Um, uh, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I love that visual of her leaving her water Now, the first question that asked is is when Jesus says the gift of God, it's the only place that John uses gift in the Gospel of John. And what does he mean when he says gift of God? What exactly is he offering? 
Now, people have said all different things, and, and probably there, it's, it's one of those all-of-the-above kind of comments. Uh, is it salvation? It's probably salvation and eternal life. Is it the Holy Spirit specifically? It's probably the Holy Spirit specifically. And yet, I want to just draw your attention into the Old Testament. There were, there were certain scriptures that name God himself, the one true living God, as... The spring of living water. Not a spring, but the spring of living water. For example, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you, will be, you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So I'd like to think and be mindful of that of all the things that God is offering to this woman, that Jesus is offering to, offering salvation, I believe is true, offering uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, eternal life. He's offering all this to the woman, but at the core of what he's offering her is Abba Father himself, the, the living spring. The one thing. Now let's talk just a little bit about the the, the cultural barriers that are present in the story, which we might not know as as 21st century readers. But of course, I mentioned the ethnic uh, barriers that are there with the Samaritan woman. Um, Way back, uh, 700 years prior to this time, there was a northern kingdom in the Assyrian government, a nation conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, right? And their capital was in Samaria. And so they brought out the Jewish people. This is what they'd do. They'd conquer a nation, and then they'd import many of their uh, um, people or export many of their people and import their own people, right, to destroy that nation, that they'd never rise again. That's partly what makes it pretty incredible that Israel is still a nation, is that they've been conquered many times and they brought out and brought out the Jewish people and brought in some of the Assyrian people. And what happened is they would intermingle and they would mix and they would marry together and the culture, the Assyrian culture, would take hold and grow and overcome the culture of the Jews. But that didn't happen. But there was, in the Samaritan area, uh, that section, it was mixed race. They had violated that. So... Ethnically, they saw them as a compromised people. But added with that ethnic barrier that was there was also the sex barrier, the gender barrier. You saw that. Like a a good Jewish, especially rabbi, would not associate with a woman that was not his wife and especially would not associate with a woman who was known to be morally compromised, like super, super no-no in that context, right? Not to talk with them, not to raise uh, questions and eyebrows and all those things. Also, there's an element of purity and righteousness. The reason why pious Jews would go around Samaria is that they believed in an external righteousness, that if you touched someone that was compromised, then you were compromised. They wouldn't touch anyone like a woman who was in her uh, um, 
cycle, woman's cycle, that, that would be a way that they would become impure in association. Leprosy, that's why lepers, they, they would have to say unclean. If you were associated, even touch the clothes of that, that would make you unclean, right? So there's this idea of external righteousness that was also a barrier between Jesus and this woman. And then the religious barrier, what happened, the Samaritans, they they couldn't get to Jerusalem and the temple because of all of the racism. And so they, Mount Gerizim was in, they were probably in view of the mountain or close to it, and that's where the Samaritans worshipped. And they didn't recognize all of the Old Testament. They only recognized the first five books, the Pentateuch. And they, they kind of had their own version of that. And so they were polluting the Jewish religion itself. There was so much hatred that there's record, historical record in the first uh, century where, where the Romans had to get involved with the, uh, with the Jews and the Samaritans fighting back and forth. And they had to crucify people on both sides because there was so much hatred. 150 years prior to Jesus, they, the, the Jews brought down the temple on Mount Gerizim. There was just this hatred. They, they hated them at least as much, possibly more, than the hated Romans. So you've got all this backstory, and you've got this woman who's come to the well at noon, the hottest time probably because of her moral background, that no one else, the the women would mostly go in the early morning or the late evening when the sun wasn't so hot. She's there, and all of a sudden she's getting water, and she, she sees a Jewish rabbi, and she thinks, oh my goodness. Ugh. Should I even go? Right? Do you think this woman felt close to God? Do you think she was aware of what Jesus' view of her as a Jewish rabbi probably was? Do you think she was aware of her own righteousness and past history? She was aware of all of that. So here's my question. If you've got all of this happening, all this tension, Why does Jesus bother? Why did he cross all these barriers to ask? I mean, maybe he was just really thirsty. So he puts that on the side. Was that it? Maybe the disciples who were taking too long, so he was just bored. He was like, man, I'll mess with this woman just a little. Was he, was he messing with her? I mean, he does kind of mess with her. We'll talk about that in just a second. Why does he bother? Why does he cross all these barriers? I like to think of these stories. I get choked up sometimes. I like to think of these stories from the shadow of the cross that Jesus knew he was going to die for her sins. He knew 
that despite all the junk in her life, despite all the cultural junk and and, and the wars back and forth, he knew that he was going to die and that for this broken woman, through his life and ministry, the very God of the universe, the spring of life would be available to her. That all of her sins, like yours and mine, could be wiped away. All the shame, all the condemnation, all the guilt that she carried with her to that well at at noon, he knew that through his life and ministry, that this would be available. She'd be able to drink from the living spring. Was some cultural barriers going to hold Jesus back from giving this woman a drink? No way. No way. And it shouldn't hold us back. Jesus breaks through those cultural barriers. Friends, I I believe that Jesus was talking about, he's he's talking about a, a living spring that was available to her in that moment, in that time, that's available to you and me right here in this moment. And is there anything that's going to hold you back? Is there any barrier that's going to hold you back from allowing this this thirst, just like you could feel it. This woman is like, give me a drink of this water. She doesn't get it fully, but she's, there's this stirring. The spirit seems to be working, and, and she, this thirst is stirred within her. Is that thirst stirring in you? Let's talk about some other barriers. There's cultural barriers, yes, but... Uh, there is, there's barriers of the heart as well. And I want to talk about those barriers a little bit. There is a, a powerful... Oh, let me ask you this first. Let's go back to our question. Why the conversation is going so good, why in the world would Jesus bring up her past? And her relationships. Was he just messing with her? Was he just having fun? Doesn't sound like Jesus does it. I believe that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, receives a word of knowledge, which you can read about in 1 Corinthians 12. And this word of knowledge is utilized, and he's given knowledge about her specific information. And by the way, that word of knowledge is available, that that gift, sometimes God gives gifts to people to utilize that in evangelistic ways, that we would share the love of God through the word of knowledge. So So Jesus gets this word of knowledge and he shares this. Why would he share this? 
I think it has to do with a Jeremiah passage. It's found in Jeremiah 2.13. God is saying, of course, this is hundreds of years before Jesus comes, but I think these words are still applicable to us today. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. There's that. God referring to himself as the spring of living water again. And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Cisterns are are like wells, but they're waterproof. But he's saying you're digging your own wells, you're you're, you're proofing the side, which kind of makes them cisterns, but they're leaking, they're leaking bad. Now think about this for the women, woman here. She's physically coming to Jacob's well. But spiritually, emotionally, relationally, she's been going to the well of unhealthy relationships again and again and again. Five times. She's sixth journey back to her relational well, her relational cistern. Jesus is offering this spring of living water, but he wants to identify with her the well she needs to turn away from in order to really receive the living waters of Christ. Here's my question. What's your well? What's your cistern? What are you turning towards that's at the center of your life, the center of your identity, of who you are? What are you substituting for Christ being at the center? I mean, boy, in the United States, we have some phenomenal-looking wells, don't we? I mean, we've got careers and, and jobs. We've, we've got nice cars, I mean, really nice cars that are available to us. All right, we've got all sorts of... We've got relationships. We've got fame. We've got social media. We've got all sorts of this stuff, and... And it's so easy to turn away from the one spring, living spring of life. And think, boy, this is a great looking cistern and I can, I can get it all waterproof and I can hold it, I can do my own thing. Whether it's relationships, whether it's career, whether it's the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of happiness, whatever that is, Boy, I think that Jeremiah's words are are true, as true today as way back when. Two sins we've turned away from. The living spring of life. And we've turned towards other wells or cisterns. I think he changes and makes it even more uncomfortable 
because he wants to reveal her broken cistern, her leaky well, that she would repent of that. And then she can drink from the living streams. And it's beautiful. I think we know the answer of the woman. How do we know? She left her jar. A little detail, that jar. Just get the picture of her running off and the disciples coming and Jesus seeing that jar. He's got a smile on his face. I wonder if that's why Peter didn't say anything. Because he saw the smile and said, okay, I don't get it. For once, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Now, I'm so thankful that she changes the subject because we get this beautiful teaching and I want to I talk about um, one other area of barriers, and that are the barriers of worship. And I think it's related. We'll, we'll see if it's related. But some of the questions that the early church might have been asking, so John was probably written right after the fall of the temple. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, 70 AD. We're, John was written maybe a, a decade or so after that. Right, And so one of the questions of the early church would have been, what kind of impact does the fall of, uh, of the temple, the Jewish temple, have on us? Another question also would have been, um, by the way, is the early church was wrestling with this idea. It was primarily just a Jewish faith. And it was moving to all different nations including the hated Samaritans. And so that's what a lot of the book of Acts is about, is the early church wrestling with this dynamic of spreading to all nations. And John would have been written not too long after the book of Acts, even. And so he's addressing, so in one sense, John is helping the church recognize that this was Jesus' idea that the, the living streams would be for everyone, even Romans, even Samaritans, everyone, women. But then also this idea of the temple and worship. What does this mean of the tension between Samaritans worshiping in Mount Gerizim? She brings up the mountain and Jerusalem, and she's saying, okay, what's this? Probably to get off for the conversation off of her own life, but she brings up this significant issue that might have the, the early church might have been uh, wondering about, and Jesus says this. Let's read it again. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. I don't know anywhere else in Scripture that talks about the Father seeking. But the Heavenly Father, our Abba Father, enthroned in heaven, is seeking people who get it. I think this is worthy to pay attention to. Yes? 
God, Jesus says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. He's saying that's what the Father is looking out from the throne room. He's looking for people today who get it, who will worship in spirit and in truth. All right, I just looked at the time. I can't believe that I'm already at 11.30. Here it is. So what's that mean? Real quickly, truth, truth matters. Absolute truth matters. Who God actually is, what he's like, what he says about himself and about you and I, that matters. And the truth is, is he's been speaking revelation first through the Jewish people and then through Christ. He's revealing himself through nature, through the scriptures, and ultimately through the person of Christ Jesus. And so when we worship, we can't know God in full because we're part of the creation, but he's revealed so much to us. And we can worship in truth. Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth. And in spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of uh, our worship. Back to the diagram that we had. Cindy, we've got a, a diagram in there. Remember we drew that? It was a picture of Mikey, but also him in the middle. He's got... Uh, he's got a body, but then a soul and a spirit. Um, go to the first one previous to that. Yep, and we're born with a little spirit. And what to be born again, John 3 is, is the Holy Spirit fills our spirit. And then when we are born again, then we begin to connect our little spirit with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And true worship is not only true revelation, but is also a spirit-to-spirit connection. I read an article uh, by a professor at Asbury, and he was teaching his students about what was happening, and he said, I reminded my students that we are creatures made for worship and communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is our telos, our, our purpose. The end for which we were created. We, never more we are never more fully alive and whole than when we worship. And what we are experiencing now, this inexpressibly deep sense of peace, wholeness, Holiness, belonging, and love is only the smallest of windows into the life for which we are made. I'll read that last part again. Is only the smallest of windows into the life for which, for which we were made. If I could give you a picture of this, as sometimes in worship, it happened this morning. Not always, but worshiping the little spirit man within me, my own spirit, lifts us his arms. And I connect with the Holy Spirit. 
You know what happens in that moment? That living spring that God, that Jesus is offering? It starts to come right here in my chest. This can happen at Asbury. This can happen here. But really, it's the living spring that in that woman, the Samaritan woman, that broken woman, as she turned away from her own cistern and well and turned towards the one true living God, the living spring, this fountain came out. And it moved from her spirit to her heart to her mind, her emotions, her conscience, his will. And that's what the Father is seeking. So we're going to invite Jedediah and the worship team forward. And we're going to have some extended time. And uh, yeah, I'm going to give you the benediction and dismiss you. If you would go and get your kids, please, that would be great. If you'd like to be a part of the extended time, we're going to just, we're going to linger a bit. We're going to take some time of turning away from our own wells and turning towards the living stream. So if you would stand. Just close your eyes for a moment. So Lord, we want to live with your living streams bubbling up within us. Lord, would you help us to turn away from the cisterns of our own making and our own turning. Holy Spirit, if you need to bring that to light in us, please do that. Please help us to recognize our own wells, our own cisterns. And Lord, would you enable us to drink from the living streams of life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God bless you.